We're doing lesson number eight in the quarterly, the book of Acts, the Jerusalem Council. The memory verse is from Acts 15.11. Uh, we're going to read verses 10 and 11. It says, now then, why do you uh, try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. And then here is from the, the Living uh, Translation, the New Living Translation. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved in the same way, by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus. What does it mean? What does this mean? What is the, what is the message of the text trying to tell us? Is it telling us that we cannot be saved by law-keeping? Is that what it's telling us? You can't be saved by law-keeping. Yes? No? You guys are confused? Look at the text again. What are you doing putting this burden on these people that we couldn't do? We're saved by the grace. So is it saying we can't be saved by law-keeping? Yes. Yes, that's what it's saying. You can't be saved by law-keeping. But question, can you be lost by law-breaking? Yes. Okay. So how do you explain if, if law-breaking can cause you to be lost, that law-keeping cannot cause you to be saved? What law are you following? Okay, so which law lens are we looking through? Exactly correct. So how is it often explained in the imposed law view? The imposed law view, that once the law is broken, like human law, imposed law is like human law, like the laws that this court or your state or your government would have, that's the imposed law view, that once the law is broken... A penalty is required. Somebody has to be punished. Okay? So if a murderer committed murder 20 years ago and hasn't committed murder for the last 20 years, so they've been keeping the law ever since they broke the law, now they're keeping the law, it doesn't set aside the fact they still deserve punishment for when they broke the law. That's how imposed law looks at it. So it doesn't matter how much law keeping you've done, you're still guilty for having previously broken the law. Does that make sense to everybody? And that somebody has to be executed for that broken law. The penalty is death, and somebody needs to be executed for that. Somebody. Now think about that construct just for a moment. How many of you think that it would be reasonable to punish an innocent person for the crimes of a guilty person? How many would vote for that in your society? That we can, if you're guilty of murder, as long as you can find some innocent person who's never done a crime to take your punishment and be executed in your place, then you can go scot-free. How many would vote for a system like that? No. I like your question. We don't vote for it, but sometimes a mother might volunteer to give her life for a child or vice versa. Yep. And, and so, so a person who loves somebody might volunteer. So, And how about if a parent comes forward to the court and says, I know my son murdered those children. I know my son did that. I, I, I love my son so much. I'll give my life. Kill me. Execute me. Convict me of guilt, even though I've done no crime, and, and set my son free. How many courts would approve of that? Would you vote, uh, if you were a congressman, to pass a law to make it legal for a loved one to be executed in the place of a guilty loved one, an innocent loved one? Would you vote for that if you were a congressman? No. To make that the law of the land? No. It doesn't make society any safer to have that right or sacrifice for that. Does anybody think it would be just and right to do? Do you see, even in the imposed law system, when we teach this idea that it's, le it's legal, it's right, it's good to allow an innocent to step in and be punished arbitrarily or imposed penalties upon so the guilty get to go for it, 
it, it makes no sense. It's not just. It's not right. It's wrong. But that's how we teach God runs his universe. It's corrupt. What would you say about God or a God who allowed for sacrifices to be offered to him to let off guilty people? Notice I'm, I'm staying in the legal model here, to let off guilty people. It's like paying a veil to set them free. That's exactly right. Or the, stat, or the virgin and the volcano thing. There you go. Let's offer the virgin to the volcano god so we can have... Yeah, exactly. This, this is paganism, exactly what you're saying. So does anyone in the penal legal camp teach that anyone other than Jesus, any other human being, can actually keep the law. Do they teach that you can keep the law? They don't. No, not really. So, then aren't we always piling up more crimes that deserve more punishment? Yes. Yes. And this has led to the whole, you know, all sins, past, present, and future, put on Jesus, the innocent, and God punished him, and he punished him with such ferocity and such infinite punishment that it pays the penalty for all the sins ever committed by all time for all people, and they're legally taken care of. And if you accept that payment, then he can be punished in your stead. It's just, really, if you th- any thinking person, it becomes bizarre, weird. So how do we explain, though, the reality... That we cannot be saved by law-keeping, that's a reality, we cannot be saved by law-keeping, with the reality that you can be lost by law-breaking in the design law model. How do you explain it that way? Well, very simply, and it makes sense, you guys know this, breaking the laws of health, which are design laws, cause disease, yes? Keeping the laws of health once you have a terminal condition from your law-breaking does not cure the condition. So a person who smokes two packs a day and gets lung cancer, and then after they have lung cancer, they stop smoking. So now they're in harmony with the laws of health. They're not going to smoke anymore. Does that cure their condition? No. Keeping the law once you have a terminal condition doesn't heal or provide remedy for the condition. So we can be lost by law breaking, by destroying and corrupting ourselves, but we cannot keep the law... to heal or restore ourselves. We need an external remedy. Don't you think it's because it's a condition of the heart? Well, like it's a condition of our being. That's correct. It's a condition of our being, just like lung cancer is a condition of being, not an external legal status in some record book somewhere. That's correct. So Jesus came to provide a remedy to the cancer of sinfulness. The remedy is provided free by God, and this is known as God's grace. God's work, God's actions to provide or take upon himself the condition and cure it. Now, how right would it be, also known as, what's a a Bible word for being right or doing right? Just. Just, justify, or righteous. That's exactly right. So how righteous is it for a, this is where mom comes in with her love, okay? How righteous is it for a healthy person to donate bone marrow to a terminal person with leukemia. How righteous is that? How reasonable is that? So we see how righteous it is for an innocent, healthy, innocent, cancer-free person to sacrifice self to donate a healing remedy to a person with a terminal condition. Boy, that's righteous. That makes sense. 
There's no unrighteousness, no injustice in that. Partaking of the remedy then cures, transforms, heals, uh, regenerates hearts and minds. However, does taking of the remedy prevent future damage that would come from breaking the laws again? So you've got a cancer condition from some unhealthy living practices, breaking the laws of health. And you go to the doctor and they provide some remedy that puts the cancer into remission. And that's provided to you for free. You didn't develop it. You didn't create it. Some, some other person did it, but you've partaken. So you're now having the cancer put into remission. You're being restored. You're being healed. But then you go out and do the same unhealthy behaviors again. Can you damage yourself again? So do you see how law keeping does not save you? But law breaking can cause you to be lost. Does that make sense? And do you see how perfectly things fit when we have a design law view? And how confusing and crazy they get when you have the imposed law view. So here are these same verses from the remedy. So why are you trying to prove you know better than God by putting legal requirements and rituals on them, which will only enslave them like a yoke around their necks and which neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No way. Don't do it. We believe it is through the gracious remedy of our Lord Jesus that we are healed, and so are they. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, From the beginning, the church at Antioch consisted of both Hellenistic Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles, who apparently lived in peaceful fellowship with each other. That fellowship, however, was shattered by the arrival of a group of believers from Jerusalem. What happened in the Antioch church? Why did their harmony, their peace, their healthy group relationships get shattered? Legalism, okay, meaning, 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 what do we mean we hear legalism? What, what, what happened to Antioch? A group came in and they thought that it was that one had to adhere to codification that was outside of that change of heart. Okay, so they came in with a legal system of understanding. So, but that's only part of it. That is not why the the unity got shattered. This group did come in with a false remedy, a a, a lie, a distortion of reality, an untruth. They came in with this, but that's not what shattered their peace. What shattered their peace is that this group of people deferred their judgment and their thinking to the group from Jerusalem and allowed the group from Jerusalem to have a higher status of authority or standing such that they took seriously. See, if a group of pagan priests would have shown up and told them that they needed to go back and worship Baal, they probably would not have had fragmentation and disunity. They would have probably said, no, you guys need to understand the the riches and joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happened was these groups came from the Jews and Judaism in Jerusalem who've now accepted Christ and they had a distortion of reality and these new converts who didn't have all the history of Judaism, didn't have the years of Bible study, hadn't gone to seminary training, didn't have a degree in theology. These new converts who knew Jesus Christ had a new heart and right spirit deferred to the educated people from from Jerusalem and said, hey, these guys must know better than us. 
What are we doing? We haven't understood this. And so it wasn't just that they came with legalism, which they did, but they came to legalism to a group of people who were willing to surrender their thinking to them. I want you to see that dynamic very clearly because I think we sometimes say, well, they just came with legalism. We can have the same problem today. And remember, one of the principles of this ministry in this class is I am not here to tell anybody what to think. I am not your mind for you. You have your own individuality, your own identity, your own capacities for reasoning and thinking. That's why we call it common reason ministries because my goal is to stimulate you to think and reason, but then you have the responsibility to weigh it out for yourself and come to your own conclusion. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14. So notice now I'm going to read to you something out of a book called The Desire of Ages and notice what's being described here. The ministry of Christ, uh, by the way, for the reference, that is page 150. Uh, The ministry of Christ was in marked contrast to that of the Jewish elders. Their regard for tradition and formalism had destroyed all real freedom of thought or action. They lived in a continual dread of defilement. They avoided contact with the unclean. They kept aloof not only from the Gentiles, but from the majority of their own people, seeking neither to benefit them nor to win their friendship. I'm going to pause right here. Do you notice what this author uh, specifically identifies what they avoided doing? They avoided seeking to benefit and befriend people. You know, she didn't say they, they avoided going out and partying and getting drunk. With the, with the, they avoided the heathen cult fertility practices. It, it's not saying, see, this author isn't saying they avoided the things the heathens were doing in society. They avoided acts of mercy, acts of beneficence, acts of kindness, acts of ministry. They wouldn't help somebody. And this is important in case a parent is dealing with a, a Pharisee uh, child or someone who wants to take the Pharisaical rule, and they'll say it to you, hey, when you say no, you can't go out with these kids because they're going to go to this bar or they're going to go to this concert that's going to have this activity and it's healthy and destructive. And they say, hey, you're being a Pharisee. You're just trying to separate walls. We're, we're supposed to go out and interact with the world. That's when you come back and say, no, we're supposed to go out and befriend the world and do acts of kindness and ministry to bring godly principles to their life. We're not supposed to participate in the destructive and unhealthy practices that they're participating in. So there is a place to draw a wall. Do you see the subtle difference there? I know some SDAs do the same thing. Oh, and by the way, do you notice the motive here? The primary motive is self. I don't want to talk to these people because I might get defiled. I don't want to associate with these people because my salvation status might be jeopardized. I don't want to associate with these people because I may have a sin and my record book's put in heaven. In other words, their whole focus is on their personal righteousness, their personal sense of salvation. There is no concern for the help of others. And I know some SDAs that have this approach and they don't want to have conversations or talk or visit with somebody on Sabbath because they might bring up a, a, a football game or a baseball game or, or they might mention a movie they saw during the weekend and they might mention that and then I'll be defiled because somebody mentioned a non-Bible topic on the Sabbath and I heard it and it defiled me. The complete loss there of the text where it says, I no longer want to call you servants but friends, that you develop that trusting relationship and that that changes the motivation of the heart was completely lost there. That's exactly right. It becomes very self-reference, but that's what you get with the false law. Guys, when you're in your car and a police officer pulls in behind you 
And you turn left, he turns left. You turn right, he turns right. Where does your focus go? On yourself. Did I not use my signal? Did I change lanes? Am I going too fast? Is my registration expired? You're going through an inventory of everything you might have done wrong so you won't get ticketed or demerited. Isn't that true? When you have the imposed law construct where you will get punished for doing wrong, then you become very self-referenced and you're very focused on, well, I'm on base, you can't tag me out. It's very much keeping yourself from trouble. There's no love involved. I'm sorry, I could help you, but if I step off base, I'll get tagged out too, so I can't come off base and help you. Sorry. It's Sabbath hours. Maybe after the Sabbath I can come off base and help you. But right now, you're going to just have to starve. That's how it's viewed. It's very self-reference when we have the imperial law construct. Okay, continuing on with the quote. By dwelling constantly on these matters, they had dwarfed their minds and narrowed the orbits of their lives. Their example encouraged egotism and intolerance among all classes of people. What's another word for egotism? Self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, selfishness. This this imperial law construct with its focus on the do's and the don'ts and not getting yourself in trouble leads to more selfishness, not recreation of heart. It's such a subtle infection to Christianity. You wonder why the Lord hasn't come. He's waiting for a people to come back to the true knowledge of him to experience a transformation where they love God and others. Uh, One more paragraph. Jesus began the work of reformation by coming into close sympathy with humanity. While he showed the greatest reverence for the law of God, he rebuked the pretentious piety of the Pharisees and tried to free the people from the senseless rules that bound them. He would seek to break down the barriers which separated the different classes of society that he might bring men together as children of one family. Notice, all things come together under one head, Jesus Christ. God is the God of unity. He brings things back into harmony. Who's the God of division? Satan is the God of division. And how many denominational groups are there? Tens of thousands of different sects and groups within Christianity that are fractured off and split. Why? What kind of law were the Judaizers here in Antioch focusing on? Impose law, system of rules, not design law. Jesus focuses on design law, building relationships, healing, bringing restoration. Do we have problems like this in the world today? Okay, so imagine this. Christian, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, and atheist. All jump off a building. Does gravity treat them differently? <laughs> There's no differentiation. Gravity doesn't go, well, how were you baptized? Or, or, or what God do you profess in? The design laws of God don't discriminate. They're constants. How about they all get infected with Ebola? Do they need a different treatment? Or they all need the same treatment? How about all humanity is infected with fear and selfishness? We all distrust God by by our our inheritance, and all humanity needs the truth about God to restore trust and renew hearts and minds. We all have the same condition needing the same remedy. So if a Buddhist has discovered the truth of other-centered love and has experienced a renewed heart where they would give their life for their friend, how did that happen? How was that made possible? What means was employed to bring that about? Did it happen by the Buddhist law-keeping? It did not. It happened by the grace of God applying the achievements of Christ in the heart-mind of the Buddhist. That's how it happened. 
They were saved through what Christ accomplished, even though they haven't heard or accepted the name of Christ yet. Is there a biblical basis for what I'm saying, or am I out here in left field all by myself? Well, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. God's divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And then Paul goes down in his treatise, following up in verse uh, chapter 2, starting verse 12, for those who have not heard the law, which is scripture, but do by nature the things contained in the law, they are law unto themselves, showing that the law has been written on their hearts and minds. Well, what's the new covenant? Write my law on your heart and mind. What kind of law? God's design protocols for life where we die to self and have the law of love written in again. And so the Bible is teaching that there are people who have seen the principles of beneficence, kindness, selfishness, honesty as written in the laws of nature. And the Holy Spirit is still the spirit of truth, enlightening their minds, even though they've never had the scriptures brought to them. They've never heard the truth about Jesus Christ. And those who respond to those principles, the Holy Spirit renews their hearts via the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. Second paragraph, traditionally called Judaizers, those individuals from Judea were, were possibly the same ones identified in verse 5 as believing Pharisees. The presence of Pharisees in the church would not surprise us as Paul himself had been a Pharisee prior to his conversion. This group seemed to have gone to Antioch on their own initiative, though another episode that also took place in Antioch sometime later shows that most Jews, including the apostles, were not very comfortable with the presence of uncircumcised Gentiles in the church. Most Jews, converted Jews, including the apostles for a period of time, were not comfortable with uncircumcised Gentiles. What does this mean that even the apostles struggled with this? What, what lessons, what are the, the truths revealed by that fact? That's a fact. What's it, what's it tell us? Our condition's universal. Our condition's universal. We're all affected by prior belief systems, what we've been raised with, what we've been exposed to, other uh, experiences along the way. That, that colors our every day by, by fact. But the openness to God's transformation of heart can take us from our state of those exposures and change it to caring about the individual. Okay, I like what you're saying. Any other thoughts, lessons? Is this saying that a person can be a genuinely converted, reborn Christian who has Jesus living in their heart, has died to self, loves others, has even had the gift of the Holy Spirit with the gift of prophecy and is a prophet of God, an apostle of God even, and still be wrong on some issues. Was Peter wrong and had to be corrected by Paul? Yes, Yes, he was. After his conversion, after his empowerment in the upper room and the spirit was poured out, after his prophetic gift was given to him, he still was wrong on this issue and had to be corrected. First, he was corrected in the vision with Cornelius, and Paul even later had to correct him again. What does that tell you about how you approach someone that you believe has the gift of prophecy? That you said, well, if the prophet said it, who am I to question? I, I don't question it. The prophet said it. I just believe it. That's it. The Bible said it. I believe it. That's it. If it's in the Bible, I, who am I to question? I just believe it. Or do you question it at all? Do you think, what does it mean? Why was it written? To whom was it written? What was the purpose? What was the agenda? 
Because if you don't think, you're going to be in trouble. You read 1 Kings 22, and you see the prophet Micaiah coming to Ahab and Jehoshaphat and telling him that, hey, uh, the Lord had a council and said, hey, in heaven, how can we draw Jehoshaphat, uh, excuse me, how can we call Ahab into his death against Ramoth Gilead? And one spirit said this, and one spirit said that, and another spirit stood up and said, I know, I'll be a lying, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. And the Lord said, go do it. Well, I don't question if the Lord says lying prophets, then he does. I mean, if the Lord has spirits in heaven that lie and he uses them to, to deceive us, well, I just believe in a deceiving God. Do we just believe, or do you think? Do you reason? Do you, what, do you, wait, wait a second, what does that mean? Do I just take it as it says? And then if I don't take that as it says, do you take the part in the New Testament that says, well, I don't allow woman, women to have authority over men. Well, the Bible said it, who am I to question it? This is building on a relationship with God. Any relationship that is growing is dynamic, that is ongoing, that is continuing to seek to understand and, and to grow. And that involves continual thinking and engaging and heart engagement. So exactly what you're saying, this demonstrates how God works, his method. And what is his method? His method is to present truth in love, leave you free to comprehend, understand, internalize, accept, and apply. Because if you don't accept it and apply it, you're not transformed by it. And God, while he is all-powerful and he has the power to reach into your head, and he has the power to make changes inside your head without your participation, the moment he does that, your individuality is destroyed. It's not you anymore. And it's also our privilege to continue to seek that with him. It's, it is a beautiful privilege to seek that growth with him. Many people, though, are in a relationship with a God that they think they're growing with, but the God that they're growing with is a God who is a dictator, and they're just seeking to grow in the relationship with a God that they can be more obedient to, and they just want to understand more what he tells them to do, and they want to follow the rules more effectively, and they want to go more deeper into that commitment to, to do without thought what he says, and if God says it, I'm going to do it. But they're growing. Then we miss a lot of the Bible where we wanted to be our friend and no longer call sir. I get you. I get you. But many have that relationship and they're growing in that relationship. There's a lot of people who disregard God now because they can't believe that a good God would allow this earth to be as bad as it is. But you have to ask them or yourself if you feel that way, what would it take for God to make this world good the way it should be? If that's what you expect this world to be. And that, that, you're exactly right. But I just want to, if you ask that question to people, you will get nowhere until you co- discuss the law. Which law or lens do you answer the question through? Because when you ask that question to people, they will answer it through the ones who question God, don't believe in God. They'll answer the question through their imposed law laws. Well, I know what I would do. If I saw somebody molesting my kid, I'd, I'd shoot him. I'd kill him. I would not let this go on. I'd use my power. If I had the power to stop it, I'd stop it. And that's justice. That's righteousness. To not, to, to see evil and not take action to stop it, it's, it's wicked. And I don't believe in a God. So they're still viewing the world through the imposed law human lens. And so you can ask the question, but you're going to get this kind of an answer that doesn't take them anywhere. They have to understand how reality works. Okay? It's, maybe you do that, but then you can then, you can help them with the law question by then following up and asking, okay, let's say you do that. Can you win friends that way? Can you win love? Can you win loyalty? Can you win trust by using power to force your way on people? You see, so what God wants are loyalty, love, trust. You can't get by using power that way. You can only get it by revealing that these methods result in pain, suffering, and death, and these methods result in healing, restoration, and life. 
and leaving people free to make their choice. And so this means, guys, if you understand what this means and what we've revealed here, your personal transformation is dependent. Your maturity, your growth is dependent on the choices you make after you accept Jesus. The rate of your growth and maturity into Christ-likeness, the rate of your growth and maturity into Christ-likeness is dependent on your choices after you've accepted Jesus. Are you assimilating truths and applying them at the earliest possible moment? Or do you pause? Do you put it off? Do you delay? Even though you're in a saving love relation with Jesus, are you avoiding applications? Because the struggle, the struggle is real and the struggle is hard. Sometimes we will face certain truths the Holy Spirit brings to our minds individually that are hard. Hard for a person to give up an addiction and to have, and to have that battle and struggle. Hard for a person to give up a job on the day that they're convicted they should worship on. Hard for a person to change their diet if they've eaten certain foods their whole life and now they're convicted it's unhealthy and destroying their health. Hard to uh, give up a belief, an idea, a theology, especially if we've taught it, written books on it, published on it, preached on it. It's hard to step back and say, you know what, I was wrong on that. It's hard. It's hard to give up a wish, a hope, a longing, a dream, a, a looking forward to the day that you can see those who've harmed you punished where you can stand on the wall and smile as they scream in agony as the God brings them the punishment they deserve. It's hard to give that up for some. They're looking forward to it. Fourth paragraph. If we truly seek him out, he will give us the desires of our heart. It's not that he'll do the punishment, but that he will allow our hearts to change. To so, so you can read that two different ways. The psalm that you're referring to, I think, really says that when your heart has changed, then you get the desires of your heart. But you don't get the, or you could read it this way. Everyone gets what they truly desire. But it means that too. The selfish get what they truly desire. That's what they get. Everyone gets what their hearts truly desire. Now, if your heart's been changed, you get godly things. If your heart's evil, you get evil things. You get what your heart desires. Their point was rather simple. Unless the Gentiles were circumcised and kept all the other Jewish ceremonial laws, they could not be saved. Salvation, so they believed, was to be found only within God's covenant community. And according to the Old Testament, there was no other way to become a part of God's chosen people except through circumcision. In short, Gentiles could be saved only if they first became Jewish proselytes. So, were the Jews, question, were the Jews in Old Testament times God's agents to spread the gospel? Yes. As, Christ, as Christians are today. Yes. What is the difference between becoming a part of the Jewish nation during Old Testament times and becoming a Christian today? If both are God's agents for spreading the gospel. Why was circumcision, was circumcision necessary? Let's, let's, let's first establish. Do you believe circumcision was necessary for males in Old Testament times if they wanted to become part of the Jewish nation? Yes. It was necessary if they wanted to join the Jewish nation. Okay. Why was circumcision of the body necessary for someone to join the Jewish nation in Old Testament times, but not necessary for someone to become part of the Christian church? Why? If both are God's agents, why? Because the meaning was made clear by that point. The whole point of circumcision was to reveal something about your relationship with God. And by the time... To who? Who did the men go around revealing their circumcision to? <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, but they weren't revealing their circumcision to people. But, but so, and it's an important point to make. Like you're right. You are right in what you're saying. I just wanted to maybe just have a little fun with the words you chose. But you are right in what you're saying to a point. Okay, and and I want to unpack that point. Um, did someone have to be circumcised in Old Testament times to be part of Judaism? Yes. The answer is yes. Did someone have to be circumcised and become part of the Jewish nation in Old Testament times? Notice, in Old Testament times, in order to have salvation. No. Get your mind around that. It's missed repeatedly. Circumcision was not necessary to be saved in Old Testament times or New Testament times. Do we have examples of Old Testament people being saved without circumcision? Yeah. All the patriarchs before Abraham. And then since Abraham, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar Naaman, perhaps the thief on the cross. Yes, yes. We, have, we don't know if he was Jewish or not, but perhaps, yeah. Um, but many, we have many examples in Old Testament of people. People could be saved without becoming part. So then what's the point of become Jewish nation? Did, remember the, the Jewish people were actors in a grand play, a grand theater. They had a cool stage with intricate costumes and really cool props and a very precise script that many have called scripture. And that script, if you're going to go out on stage and act out a drama, then you have to follow the script that the director has given. If you go off script and do your own thing, then suddenly what you're enacting doesn't teach what the drama is supposed to teach. And so you would get taken off stage. Or if you get really off script, they tear the whole thing down and suspend it for 70 years. And during those 70 years, were people still being saved? No one sacrificing a temple. Script isn't being followed. People are being saved. Get your mind around this. All the Old Testament stuff was not salvific. It did not provide salvation. It did not heal from sin. It did not regenerate hearts. It did not save people to participate in it. It only taught a theatrical object symbolic lesson that was designed to enlighten minds to the larger reality, which was salvation. And thus, on the circumcision point where you were going... Circumcision is a metaphor from what the scripture teaches for the New Testament that we must have circumcision of. Okay, metaphorically. Now think about the object lesson. This is kind of a strange, weird object lesson, isn't it? But it's the point I was making a moment ago. Why circumcision? Number one, for an adult to be circumcised, is it painful? Absolutely. More painful than a child. Still painful for a child. Well, a child cry to be circumcised. An infant cry to be circumcised. Less painful for the infant? What's the, what's the metaphor there? The more we've gone in life before we've given our heart to the Lord, the more addictions, the more problems, the more habits of sin, thus the deeper the cutting has to go and the more painful it is to have our hearts changed. So first off, there's a lesson. It is a painful experience to be circumcised. Number two, when you're walking around the street, on the street, and you walk up to people, can you tell just by walking up to somebody who's been circumcised and who's not been circumcised on the street? You have no idea. When you walk up to people in the street and you just meet people in the street, do you know whose hearts have been circumcised and whose hearts have not? Yes. No, you don't. You do not. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We don't know. Now, is it possible for you to become very intimate with somebody, whether in a romantic relationship or perhaps a medical practitioner Okay, and, and in that uh, intimate relationship, you can discover if someone's been physically circumcised or not. Yes. Okay, 
Or maybe close friends that on a hot summer day are skinny dipping together. You might, you might, you might be able to discover these things, right? Or a locker room. Okay. Same thing when you come to know people as real people. You get to actually know them intimately, not sexually, intimately. You will begin to discover their true traits of character. And you'll discover whether their hearts have been changed or not. So this metaphor of circumcision is very powerful. Now, while one could not go on stage and act in the play if they didn't wear the right costumes and have prepared themselves in the right way, thus they couldn't be part of Judaism without the physical circumcision, one could experience the reality of circumcision with the heart without having the body circumcised. And that's what the difference between the Jewish and the Christian. Now, circumcision of the body was merely a physical enactment of a symbol of a larger reality. Do we have problems with that in Christianity today? Do we have division? This division, because some were holding to symbolism, we must enact the symbol. It was causing division in the church for those who realized, no, if the symbol isn't necessary, the reality is necessary. Do we have this problem in Christianity today where there are certain people who dogmatically hold to certain forms of symbolic and ritualistic stuff, applying it literalistically, concretely, and absolutely, but maybe miss the larger reality to which it points, and thus it causes division? Do we have a problem with this? How about, are there divisions in Christianity today because of the form or method of baptism? The day of worship ordination of women in the church or not. The meaning of the communion or the Eucharist or how it was applied. Foot washing or not foot washing ceremonies in church. Foods authorized to eat. Notice I didn't say foods healthy to eat. I said foods authorized to eat. Smoking tobacco or not smoking tobacco. Now, why do these things cause division? Is there anything in the list that I just gave that if you observe those things properly, and we will say with, we will have a consensus of what the proper way is, and we won't argue which is, we'll just assume it's the proper way, that if you observe any of those things or all of those things in the proper way, that that then results in salvation? Anything on that list that results in salvation? Is there anything on that list that if you don't do it in the proper way, automatically results in being lost. Yeah. I'm going to give you a moment to think about that. So if you don't eat the right foods or don't get baptized in the right way or don't worship on the right day or you uh, ordain women or don't ordain women or you do a Eucharist versus a traditional communion or you wash feet or don't wash feet or maybe you smoke tobacco or don't smoke tobacco. Any of those things actually directly negate someone from being saved or not. They do not. They do not. Why then, if these things can't save you from doing them, and if you're not doing them in the right way, they can't cause you to be lost, then why is there so much division in Christianity over it? I want to submit that some of those things can make it easier to be lost. Yeah. An unhealthy body contributes to an unhealthy mind, sure. or vice versa. It doesn't guarantee 
I will point out as a neurobiologist that there are genetic conditions in which people have dysfunction of prefrontal cortex with genetic-driven reasons for low norepinephrine and, and dopamine, and that those people have inattention problems, distractibility problems, memory impairments, concentration problems, and that nicotine is a poor man's way. It's inefficient, not as good as medicine, but it does enhance their, their, their brain moves towards normal when they smoke nicotine, smoke tobacco. Okay. So they actually have better cognition, better function, can attend better, can learn better, can process information better, which means they can have better discernment for those who have that problem. Does that mean it's healthy for them on a physiological state? No, but there's uh, there's a reason that some people may actually find they function better in life. Are we to judge? No. No. Can't you come back to the test also that if a person is is believing that what they're doing is a sad install, does it, that that is also the element of, of heart damage and fractured relationship as well? So this is a very important one. This is uh, Romans chapter 14. Those who, uh, you know, everyone should be fully persuaded in their mind. Those who are of immature faith should not eat the meat, and those who are mature can eat anything they want. The point being, if you think that eating meat that has been offered to an idol will put you under the influence and power of that false god such that you are now cursed and you're living under a curse, you believe that, then you better not eat the meat because you will suffer because in your mind you're believing a lie and the lie has power over you. This is the power of belief. That's exactly right. So to do something that goes against your own conscience, even if it's not prohibited by God or even wrong in its own right, but you believe it's wrong until you've come to see reality in a better light, it's best that you not do it because you will suffer under guilt and shame, even though there's nothing to be guilty of just because you believe you've done something wrong. Do you understand then how this view of the rituals can become litmus tests of orthodoxy? And then if we don't do them in the right way, we are not considered to be truly good Christians, and we then divide ourselves into groups, those who are willing to, to obey this or those who are not willing to obey this and so forth, right? Okay. So what con- that contributes to division. What contributes to unity? What brings unity? Worrying about yourself and not about others. Brings unity? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> unity? Yeah. See? What? Your, your, your condemnation oh, your are, are your own issues. They're not the issues of someone else. Okay? So you, between you and God, what is happening is not, you're not your, your brother's keeper, truly, in the sense of behavior. Oh, I see what you're saying. You, what you meant to say was, by minding your own business. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah I, I, yeah, I think it's a little more clear that way. <laughs> or dealing with your own self first. <laughs> okay. Take a moment of your own eyes. Yes. Okay. We are with you now. It's not really how I heard it initially when you said it. But that was fun. So what, what contributes to unity, guys? It's what I said earlier. Design law. Design laws unify. I guarantee you there will not be an argument amongst those five religious groups over what will happen if they jump off the Empire State Building. They're not going to have a theological debate over that. They will be unified in their understanding of what happens next and what's healthy to do there and what's not healthy to do there. So law of love unifies. When we love others and we're dealing with people who love others, there's a natural unity that happens. Um, Law of truth, that we have minds that we may not... Because we're finite beings, we don't know all things, but we have hearts that want to grow and advance into the truth at the earliest possible moment. And so we are on people who, who are open to say, you know what, that's my current understanding. You see it differently. It's okay. Share with me why you see it differently because I'm open to grow rather than 
I'm threatened because you have a different view and I need to shut you down because your view is different than mine. And, and if you have a different view, that means I'm wrong and I'm not going to be wrong. And so this is what happens when we don't love the truth. We have this division. So we're lovers of truth and we're willing to grow in truth. And we practice the principles of freedom. We present the truth in love and leave people free, as it says in Romans 14. Every person fully persuaded, and well, that's Ephesians, and then every person fully persuaded in their own mind in Romans 14. Does this mean we never, though, set boundaries? Never set boundaries that divide? No. Where do we set the boundaries? We set the boundaries based on design law. What's well, a metaphor that you can actually get your mind around? Quarantines. Do we ever separate families with a quarantine? Why do we do it? Be, t- for the health and benefit of all. Because there's an objective, destructive element in play that we need to bound or put a protective hedge around. Not because of some theological, arbitrary rule construct, but because of reality itself. And so that boundary could be on a physical one with a physical disease, but it could be somebody who has evil intended in their heart. They are currently have an addiction that they're unwilling to acknowledge. They didn't, they're in the state of denial. They can handle it, but that you, but they have a habit of stealing from people when they come into their home. And you know this because they've been doing it for years. You set a boundary, love you, but you don't come into my house. And that boundary is not based on a desire to divide. It's based on a desire to send a message that my doors are open when you have dealt with yourself in such a way that you can be trusted. Monday's lesson, the entire day is about the question of circumcision. The bottom asks the question, what's the danger of thinking that salvation comes from merely being a member of the right church? Question in the lesson, can we be saved by being a member of the right church? Does the church organization, denomination, does your church organization or denomination do evangelism? Yes. Yes? What's the purpose of evangelism? Is the primary, I'm asking for you to, I'm asking for you to evaluate your, your understanding of evangelism for the organization with which you belong. Is the primary purpose of the evangelism of your organization to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that transforms their lives and makes them a light in their community to bring more people to the light that actually changes and transforms lives? Or is it to have them join an organization? Regardless of whether lives are changed or not, they become members of an organization that have dues to pay. Dues-paying members. We call that tithes and offerings. They become dues, and the the primary purpose is to increase the dues-paying members. If we can't be saved by denominational affiliation, then why do, do you feel like there's a link between evangelism and denominational affiliation? Is there a link? Are we evangelizing primarily to bring people changed lives and healing relation with Jesus Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to lead them to the place the Holy Spirit wants to put them to good use, to, to fellowship, to, to witness? Or do, we, do we leave the Holy Spirit free? Or do we send messages that, that when we do evangelism, it's necessary they join this organization or they really aren't in a true yet saving relation with God without joining this organization? And if we do that, If we can't be saved by joining denominations, why do we do that is the question. Why? If we actually believe that that joining the organization isn't required for salvation. Maybe we've linked something that shouldn't be linked. I received an email recently, in fact, in the last 10 days from a woman who said that she really likes the 
the, the teachings of the SDA church and was thinking about joining the church, but the pastor she'd been studying with told her that she couldn't join until she stopped wearing her earrings and her wedding ring. Nice. <laughs> and she said she didn't want to do this. Is salvation founded or lost on wearing earrings and wedding rings? No. <laughs> no, I've gotten emails on this. Seriously, I've gotten multiple emails over the years. Dr. Jennings, I love what you teach, but why do you wear a wedding ring? <laughs> because I'm married, yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm going to tell you, salvation has no bearing on wearing earrings or wedding rings. There's none. But a private club, a private club can set rules for membership. And they're perfectly free to do so. Such as no jewelry if you want to join this club. But that club is not the Christian church. Jesus never told one person that they couldn't follow him until they stopped wearing jewelry. And let me tell you, Jewish people wear jewelry. They did then, they do now. Why did someone, well, excuse me, what did someone have to do in Jesus' day that he told them they had to do in order to be one of his followers? There's only one thing. You could say that. I would actually say it's slightly different. You could say that too, but I actually say it's slightly different because I think it's even more encompassing than that. Put him first. Put him first. Remember the estate that the one wanted to go take care of? Wasn't that he necessarily, but he, he had other priorities still. The only thing you had to do was put him first, which did include repentance, of course, because you're putting him before self. But you have to put him first. That was the only requirement, wasn't it? Now, with that in mind, get your mind around that. Understanding that in follow Jesus, you've got to put him first. Some people came along and converted to Jesus and they realized in their personal struggle, in their personal heart's affections, in their personal sin, sin life, they had come to be greedy, covetous, and loved money and power and clothing and jewelry. And thus they realized that for their personal experience, they had to let go of those things to put Jesus first. And they realized that they couldn't wear the jewelry because they, it just refueled all their love and covetousness and they, and they were better off without it in their journey with Jesus. But then after they had that experience, they came to presume that that would be the experience for everybody. So let's write a rule. This is what I had to do in order to come to love Jesus. I had to give up my jewelry. So therefore, everyone should give up their jewelry to come to love Jesus. This is a lie. Many things like this have been done in Christianity, but this and many other issues really fall under the category of let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. The main theme of the lesson was the Jerusalem Council. And what they said at the Jerusalem Council, and I want you to understand what they said. How do you see it? This is uh, Acts 15, 28, and 29. The Holy Spirit, because uh, the whole question is, what should the Gentiles be told they need to do or required to do and so forth? What's the direction? What's the instruction from Jerusalem Council? Here it is. The Holy Spirit and we have agreed. Notice. Do you notice the language here? The Holy Spirit and we have agreed. It wasn't. The Holy Spirit has directed and we have submitted. That's not the way the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who enlightens and waits for our agreement. 
That's the only way you can be fully persuaded in your own mind. So the Holy Spirit is enlightened, and we have come to be enlightened and now agree. Okay? The Holy Spirit and we have agreed not to put any other burdens on you besides these necessary rules. Eat no food that has been offered to idols. Eat no blood. Eat no animals that have been strangled. And keep yourself free from sexual immorality. You will be doing well if you take if uh, if you take care not to do these things. Do you notice what these are based on? Yes. Are they based on rituals? Are they based on imposed law? Just a system of rules. The church said these are the rules we're going to follow. This will be our club. You follow these rules, you can join. Is that what it was? Or are they based on design law? This is design law. The only thing that they required them to do is harmonize with God's design laws. And what are the design laws? First is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. So don't eat foods that you believe have been offered to idols and contaminants. Romans 14. Don't put stuff in your minds, not your bodies, that contaminate you. So don't eat the foods offered to idols. Don't give credit to those things. Don't worship and adore that. That's part of the whole worshiping. Don't do that. Laws of health, another design law. Don't drink blood and don't drink meat strangled because when you strangle animals, it causes lots of adrenaline, lots of toxins to get in the... Don't do that. It becomes unhealthy. It's the laws of health. And the last was the law of love, law of worship, and the law of health altogether by not being sexually immoral with people you're, and, and having sex with people you're not married to. That damages the mind. It damages the body. It's, it's, it's destructive all the way around. So these words simply harmonize with how God designed life to work best. That's what it was. No rules. But I want to read this fourth paragraph. This is really after we understand that. Get to this point here. Wednesday's lesson. In the context of Leviticus, these prohibitions mean the renunciation of paganism. Any foreigner who wished to live in Israel had to abdicate those pagan practices to which he or she had grown accustomed. Likewise, any believing Gentile who wished to join the church was required to take a firm stand against paganism. This is also true. It's not. This is true. The question is, though, See, they want you to think, well, here's the pagan stuff, and now we're going to set up a rule that you don't do pagan things. No, the question is, why were these particular practices included in paganism? And I will tell you why. Because Satan understands design law. Satan understands the laws upon which God built reality. And thus he knows if he can get you to participate in these behaviors, it will have a cause and effect consequence to damage and injure you, to efface the image of God within, to sear the conscience, warp the heart, corrupt the character, undermine the physical health if he can't get... And so Satan has multiple strategies. If he can't get a good person with good character to choose evil then his next strategy is get them off the playing field. See, if you can't get the person to throw the game who's the best athlete on the other team, then let's get them on the bench. Let's get them off the field. So good-hearted people are taken off the field in a couple ways. One, by getting them to leave unhealthy lives and eating bad foods that make them so sick that they need to be cared for in their beds at home so they can't be out there doing the work of the Lord, even though they got good hearts. So they're saved, but they can't do work for the Lord anymore. Let's get them off the field. Or... I see this in the practice here in America with my practice all the time, good-hearted people. They don't know how to say no. They don't know how to set boundaries. So let's overwork them to the point of exhaustion because they're missing another design law, and it's the law of restoration. When a finite being exerts a resource, 
It's necessary for that finite being to rest and recover, to replete the resource before they have more to expend. And that's part of the Sabbath rest. Physical sleep to help, help restore physical energy. Sabbath rest to help restore mental energy. And if we don't rest, if we just go, 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 seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, we burn out. Even if we're, we're a pastor of a church and we're ministering to people in the flock, we burn out. And this is why pastors have the highest burnout rate of almost any profession in the world. Because they don't know how to tell their parishioner who calls them with a genuine need, no, I'm resting today. Farmers who won't eat food themselves because they want to feed the starving peoples of the world feed no one. We must rest and recover. Law, law of exertion, if you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Law of restoration, once you've exercised it, you need to rest and recover. And so why these are particularly in paganism is because the devil knows when you practice these practices, they damage and destroy the image of God within you or take you off the field. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an amazing creator, God, who built us in your image, and it is your deepest desire to restore your perfection within us. We ask that your Holy Spirit take the victories of Christ, restore them in us, enable us, enlighten us, rejuvenate us, renew us, that we can go out and be lights in this world, that the world will truly get this message and break out of this dark imperialism, including the Christian church, that you might come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.